0: Kurt Vonnegut is a certain kind of writer. Somehow, he is serious. And I think one of the aspects of our day is there's a lack of seriousness about almost anything. In fact, the trivialization of our country may be what it's all about. In fact, that's what many of his books are about, too, in his own witty fashion, yet acerbic fashion, that one tells about ourselves. Hocus Pocus, his recent book. really talks about that, about... Uh, one group taken over another group. One group happens to be a prison, the other group a college, and the first group should have taken over the other group long ago anyway, in hocus-pocus. Kurt, I know you're in town for the Printer's Road Book Fair, a gathering of a lot of writers in the Midwest and elsewhere, and you'll be talking and also reading from your book and taking part in a panel on censorship. Yes. And so we begin. Shall we talk about censorship?
1: Well, I, yes, I... Uh The fun part is talking about uh, fundamentalists and and hypocrites like Jesse Helms and so forth and and their skittishness about sex and and that sort of thing. Uh, And uh, everyone can congratulate himself or herself on on being far more liberal and and worldly than to uh, welcome that sort of censorship. But there's a sort of censorship that scares me a hell of a lot more, which is controlling the mood of the country so that you dare not talk about some things as you dare not criticize uh, uh, this great victory in in the Persian Gulf because the people around you will get quite angry and I've wondered how that censorship works because you don't have to write a law to bring that about. Now this is a
0: remarkable event. The fact is that there was a a very quick victory thanks to high technology, mm-hmm. thanks to something called a patriot, that is not a flesh and blood figure but a thing that beat their thing. And so we have soldiers who are good, hard working young kids, many minorities being honored,
1: but questioning the event. Well, I hope they question. Of course, they're not allowed to question is well, what i'm I'm a well- known pacifist, and the country tolerates a certain number of freaks yeah. like that. It's about eight of us, I think, and I'm yeah. okay, so I'm saying I want uh but most people are afraid to to uh, even think that maybe this was not such a marvelous event after all and and this unanimity I think is done I think it's a technological accident, and I think it grows out of the nature of television. It rather looks as though he's trustworthy, as though he would tell you if anything was really wrong. Bush, you don't. So does Jennings. So does the people who give us the news, mm-hmm. and McNeil and Lair, And they're also very humorless. As they don't so kid we, we about anything.
0: So we, we have a uh, covering, the war that isn't covered, that is, there's no
1: analysis of it. There's, uh, in fact, there was cheerleading on the sidelines. Yeah, the Nuremberg Rally, as, as some people have said. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, being allowed to say anything because of uh, who I (laughs) (laughs) am. I think this is very similar to uh, Mussolini's Italy, uh, which was as corrupt and as bankrupt as this country is now. And so what did he do to uh, make the Italian people stand tall again? He knocked over Ethiopia, which is nowhere. Well, thinking about this now, something called the Vietnam
0: Syndrome, we—that is John Wayne. Us got a black eye from little guys in black pajamas. Now no one asks what are we doing on their front porch, but they run back to the front porch, and we're walking down. It's high noon with a black eye or a bloody nose. How could that be? So we—we we, got to beat somebody. So there mm. is Grenada. That's Woody Allen. Yeah. That's Muhammad Ali knocking yeah. out Woody Allen. And so there's Grenada. Most Americans never heard of Grenada. They wasn't even a Spanish folk song.
1: Well, they don't even know that it was a a British (laughs) colony and not in America. But so
0: that's whom we beat. Yeah. Because Grenada, we know, is a powerful Luftwaffe about the bombers tomorrow.
1: Well, they did have a very long runway. It wasn't that the story? (laughs) And that was for tourism, (laughs) built by Cubans for tourism. We said, but the the, uh, baloney. it uh, seems to satisfy the crowd, it's, and it's too bad. And, and of course, at Panama, uh, we killed between 1,000 and 2,000 uh, uh, civilians. There's people down there with rockets that went astray and all that, and uh, that was supposedly quite wonderful, too. I think of my generation, I've said, you know, we were a pacifistic generation because the United States was so disillusioned by World War I that it had been suckered into that. So the public school system of Indianapolis, and I'm sure Chicago's too, trained its students to loathe war and to be proud that we had no generals on the cabinet or anything like that. And then we turned out to be pretty good soldiers as we fought all right, although we were raised that way. But we went to war with two fears, and they were equal. One, that we might get killed. The other was that we might have to kill somebody. We dreaded those things equally. And in this book of mine that you've got there that's coming out in the fall is Fates Worse Than Death. I confess a perfectly terrible thing. Is I have a combat infantryman's badge, I have a Purple Heart, and I never killed anybody. Can you imagine coming home from a war and admitting that? And so... But that's changed now. Yeah, now we come to that.
0: Fate's Worse Than Death, by the way, is an autobiographical collage, it's called by Kurt. It's These are remarkable pieces, essays, you want to call them that, and in fact, I hope you can quote from some of the readings going along, it's being published by Putnam, and it's a beauty. Everything we're talking about is talked about here in depth. These are some of the lectures you've given, some of the essays you've written, and you talked about the nature of war and us, how removed this country is from the horrendous aspects of war, since we ourselves, the only participant, major participant in World War II, neither bombed nor invaded. Every Axis and allied country otherwise was. So therefore, war to us is still something abstract, except for families that lost their children. They, gri- for they p- grieved, but aside from no. that, not
1: really. Well, I, I, I think that the, Viet, that the Vietnam vet were shunned because they had seen what war really was. I think that is what was not liked about them. And uh, I thought that why, you know, I hope I never kill anybody. And I think most people are raised to say, gee, it would be awful if I even accidentally killed somebody. And then you hear, uh, hear our president casually kills a whole, has a whole lot of Panamanians killed or a whole lot of Iraqis killed or the Grenadians killed and feels nothing and I think that's because he was a pilot, and I never saw, had to look at it on the ground. But it's funny.
0: F- it's funny. Uh, we, we call what we call terrorism. If somebody bombs another guy in our building, he's a terrorist, and that's an actual, that's a realistic description. But if someone bombs him a distance of thousands of thousands of feet yeah. up above, he's not a terrorist. So the bombing of a
1: city is not a terrorist act. Well, Morley Safer uh, wrote a very good book about Vietnam, which came out about a year ago, and he went and had a look at where the B-36s, or where the B-52s, I guess, had dropped from the stratosphere. Mm-hmm. I mean, these, mm-hmm. these guys were way up there, perhaps invisible, and the stink of the of the pieces of bodies splattered mm-hmm. over trees and all that, and the pilots... Don't look at that sort of thing, and, and people on the ground do. Which leads
0: to perhaps uh, one of the sequences from Fates Worse Than Death, this most recent mm-hmm. work of yours about to be on the shelves of bookstores. It's a speech you made at MIT, Here's a Massachusetts Institute of Technology, yeah. that provides us with the greatest of our engineers and uh, and scientists, and it's a speech about the very problem of the unseriousness
1: of the students and some of the faculty. What, uh, yeah, what I did there, and I was quite excited. I, t- I told, uh, I often make this mistake of, of thinking something wonderful is going to happen on account of me. Uh, but I told my lecture agent, you know, th- we're going to make news. And what I proposed was that all scientists take a version of the Hippocratic Oath is to say you know I really don't want to hurt anybody and if somebody asks me to hurt somebody else I won't do it I won't use this this power at my disposal and uh, so I suggested that MIT work out this oath that every graduate in science uh, should be glad to take because doctors willingly take this thing and uh, afterwards no response <laughs> whatsoever is I, I thought there might be an editorial in the uh, uh, Daily Tech or whatever their paper is called, and uh, nothing. I, I talked to some of the guys afterwards about uh, Star Wars, about the ridiculous Reagan dream, is with mer- mirrors and, and all, uh, all sorts of magical things which were going to protect us from any sort of attack and uh, they all knew it was nonsense and they were all going to work on it. Uh, I didn't say so in the book, but a week later I spoke at Carnegie Mellon and uh, same damn thing. As They all knew it was ridiculous. It was a Rube Goldberg device and they were all going to work on it. And again, it was the only game in town is a majority of the kids who graduated from MIT the year I spoke there, I forget what year it was, went into the armaments industry because that's... This is what you have here. The whole point is, don't you, make your students so unresponsive,
0: uh, says Kurt Vonnegut in his commencement at, or in his speech at MIT. They know what I will never get through my head is that life is unserious. And then why not make Caligula's horse a consul? Mm. We know when well, I was I, Claudius, revived on a Masterpiece Theater, and there's Caligula, of course. Yeah, And he did. but. So we are
1: as unserious as Caligula. Well, I find that that uh, I tell audiences that George Bush uh, could not have insulted them more uh, if he had spit in each of the faces of them yeah. than he did when he made Dan Quayle the possible heir to our uh, powers and hopes and destinies. That's a terrible insult and the audience laughs. It's made, They yeah. do not feel insulted. I do, yeah. It, it, uh, uh, but uh, one thing, it, I have no idea how to get a handle on this government this, is to.
0: Uh, when it, when it comes to the question, after we take this uh, break with Kurt Vonnegut, the question of how this came to be, this unseriousness, or as former Congressman Bob Eckhart of Texas said, he was beaten by the oil interests finally. He said, we have lost our sense of outrage is the way you put it kurt vonnegut is my guest and a lot of the stuff you'll be hearing for the next part of the hour will be perhaps passages or reflections on his new book fates worse than death and published by putnam it'll be forthcoming and after this message more of kurt vonnegut resuming with kurt vonnegut who's in chicago by the way he won the harold washington a book award, and that's for the writer of the year whose words have had a meaning and some impact. We hope on the way we behave. Did you feel you've had an impact? you got to talk about that. Well, I've I, uh, I got to ask about you now, kurt before we uh, return to face worse than death on this whole subject of.
1: Well, it, it's a it's a lottery, as I've, I've said. Our culture is created very much on this design of a World War One charge, where at dawn, people for miles go over the top, thousands attacking all at one time, and almost everybody winds up drowning in the bottom of a shell hole or draped over the barbed wire, and a few people make it to the objectives. And, what, thousands and thousands of people set out to be writers, as I have, and as you have, may I say. And... Uh, you and I made it through, you know. <laughs> God knows why—it's just plain luck. But I, uh, yeah, I've had some influence, I think. But it's uh, certainly uh, nothing like television. And 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 uh, books are a minor, a minor uh, cultural form now. Inf- they are not influential. And I don't, as you were saying during the the break, there. These people are n- cannot be made indignant about anything. I would say that your body of work has had played a role, the
0: body of Kurt Vonnegut's work, which leads us to more than Slaughterhouse-Five, you're to the fact that you had a certain experience in Dresden during World War II, and this connects with, again, the book Fates Worse Than Death, the speech you made in Washington
1: for the space... What was that again the space the National S- mm-hmm. Air and Space Museum yeah. is part of the Smithsonian that's where they, all the rockets now, and stuff you were are talking about the
0: very what, what it is yeah. what is it like to be
1: bombed well i had a series of lectures uh called the uh the legacy of strategic bombing mm-hmm. and Curtis LeMay was going to follow me but i was <laughs> i and well we were one week apart so i didn't hear what he had to say uh but I was asked to speak. I was the only speaker who had been strategically bombed. I, <laughs> I've, I, I have been bombed by. I've been attacked by the Russian Air Force, the British Air Force, the American Air Force. Just, uh, uh, just expand that a bit for those who may not have read. all right well, I was I was a, I was captured during World War II in Germany and was made a prisoner of war and was sent to work in Dresden, which was a wedding cake city like Paris beautiful as a world art treasure. And uh, we worked there, we were in a labor detail, doing factory work, nothing to do with weapons. War was almost over, it was February, and the war was gonna end in May. And the city had been untouched, and there were were no major war industries there. The Germans had very purposely kept it as a treasure, uh, something they would have left after the war. And uh, one night, uh, well one day the Americans came over and and bombed it to make some kindling and then that night the Brits came and scattered firebombs all over it and burned the whole city down. And it became one, it was a technological experiment and uh, it turned the city into one big column of flame. a firestorm, and it killed uh, more people than were killed at Hiroshima. And I was underneath it. I was in a cellar, a very deep cellar, and survived it. But a hell of a lot of people didn't. Uh, but that is what, it, To be, I was on the ground, and after that, uh, we had to carry corpses to huge common p- pyres. And so war really didn't look so great to me. And also, uh, the war I was in is the enemy shot back, and they, sh- <laughs> they shot back so skillfully uh, that my whole division was wiped out. There were Americans, as far as you could see, with their hands over their heads, uh, so that when I saw those Iraqis, you know, there's thousands of them surrendering, I said, hey, <laughs> hi, boys. <laughs> I know what it's like.
0: Now we come to something, don't we? Yeah.
1: You see a crazy connection that
0: you see. That We know that about at least 150,000 Iraqi soldiers were killed. They were retreating, we discover now. And some of our guys called it a turkey shoot. Yeah, And you're connecting that with something that happened in World War II. Mm-hmm. The very things of which we've accused
1: others of doing. Yeah, whether this was... Uh, what what happened in Iraq, and uh, and I can say this, most people can't. It, it's like attacking a crowd leaving a high school football game on Saturday afternoon as you zap the car in front and the car in back, and then you go up and down the line and kill all these people. There, you know, there were Palestinians, there were Pakistanis, there were all kinds of people there getting ground up. I think we've been dehumanized, and I think it's technology that did it. I don't think there's any villain there, but that uh, television has and movies have taught us to be indifferent to killing. Now, the SS is the shock troops, the nastiest of the German troops. During their training, each man had to kill a cat with his bare hands while the others watched. And it turns out that this isn't really quite necessary, uh, that all you have to do is watch movies and TV shows again and again and again where it's a perfectly ordinary act to usually shoot somebody. And uh, that people weren't sickened, that people didn't cry at that, that this t- a terrible crime committed uh, in our name and with our money. What I do is when I go around and lecture, I say, hey, I give you permission to have pity. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's not treason. <laughs>
0: Which leads, course, to a question. You say television. Yeah. Television. You point out that nature is good and bad. Television can be good and bad. Depends who controls it and who uses it to, at what end. the The media, the medium itself, is not evil. It's not evil per se. No,
1: is it? It can be good. Yeah. Well, I, I blame my own trade a, a good deal. As we had no idea how influential we were as as, as hacks, and I'm a hack. I've, I've uh, written TV scripts. I've written for slick magazines, all kinds of stuff. The way to end a short story if it can only go 20 pages or to end a TV show if it can last only 30 minutes is you kill somebody. <laughs> you know, you have a shootout in front of the... Uh, Silver dollar saloon.
0: I think you're blaming the creative spirit, the writer, yourself, and others. Too much is there. But the fact is, who controls it? Why are We opened this conversation talking about censorship. Mm-hmm. There's another kind of censorship, isn't it? And, you know, the free press is free, as to paraphrase Liebling, especially the one who owns it. Yeah. So, who owns it? Isn't there a thing called self censorship? The ones you were talking about uh, in the coverage of say, the uh, Persian Gulf War, yeah. self-censorship.
1: Yeah. Well, they know what to what say and what not to say else they'll be out well, on their fanny. All right, uh, suppose a paper did what the nation does, what the nation is a, a tiny publication with circulation of about 100,000, which has uh, criticized the war and uh, the yellow ribbons and all that and all the jingoism Suppose the Chicago Tribune or the Washington Post were to take that same attitude, I think they, they would be punished immediately by the general public, wouldn't they? Wouldn't the public be outraged?
0: That's a question. Uh, that's a
1: big one. Then you're saying, mm-hmm. who conditioned the
0: public and how? What is it that made the public think the way it is? Now, I'm not I'm not immunizing the public mm-hmm. from blame, if that's the word. I'm, I'm not exempting them mm-hmm. from blame. But what? Made these young kids lose their sense
1: of outrage, or our contemporaries do so. Well, I th- I think television is life. I think television has become life, and and uh, uh, so uh, people believe it <laughs> and uh, respond to it. You know, the Ray Bradbury's story is Fahrenheit 459, mm. but the fireman's <coughs> wife in there is very discontented. Because I have television screens on only three walls of the living room mm. there, like You can't afford the fourth wall, mm. and uh, so she sits in the middle here, and she's part of the family, but ever so often something happens on this missing wall, <laughs> and she c- mm. she can't respond to it. But I I think television is life for most people, and maybe for me too. We want to come back to
0: the matter of a, of your book, "Fates Worse Than Death," and some of the other, the all reflections on the one theme is. Uh, To what has happened to us, and and something Norman Carwin has called the trivializing of America, and overwhelmed by trivia, a serious. For example, I have a theory that the average American who voted for Ronald Reagan knew he'd never be confused with Albert Einstein. No, they knew he's pretty dumb, and it's okay because the president is dumb. I can be dumb too, and so if some guy comes up to me, gets Mm -hmm. serious and heavy, talking about the. Uh, poor Cambodians who are bombed out or the poor uh, Guatemalan exiles. I can say, oh go to hell, I want to talk about the Bears or about uh, Joan Collins or something. If the president can't,
1: why can't I see the the object lesson I have is it's okay to be dumb. Yeah. And and of course the politicians love it that the electorate is so dumb and, and of course they're not gonna put money into education. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got one theory. Is you know, I've been a, a, a minor part of the peace movement, that I, I come out and uh, through several wars now, and I think that there are so few of us because most people don't care if life stops. I think they are so embarrassed because they don't dance well enough, or they don't make love as well as as they think they should, or they can't play any sport very well. Or, you know, is, uh, or their teeth are uneven, and they s- are so embarrassed, they want to die. And I think that people hate life so much. That's the reason the ecologists uh, get so little support and all that, is uh, actually, you know, the, the Thoreau thing about the massive men uh, lead There's lives quiet, with quite quiet desperation. Do you think we should become a necrophilic society? I think that most people are so embarrassed by what they are that they want to die. <laughs> now it's possible that Kurt
0: <laughs> Vonnegut is being ironic right now too, at this moment sometimes you, I suppose you have to mm. to awaken someone sometimes you have to say something
1: well, as uh, someone say what you said just now is outrageous yeah well i i bill Buckley quoted I was on his show <laughs> one time and he quoted a line back to me and uh, demanded that i demanded that i defend it and he thought it was a terrible thing and i forgot i'd said it and i still don't know in what context i said it but i said that my purpose was to destroy the united states army as an effective fighting force <laughs> he took it literally yeah, yeah of course He <laughs> <laughs> said, which proves that among conservatives there's not
0: too much humor <laughs> a humorless lot but then, uh, who isn't a humanist? like be liberals, too, these days.
1: Well, you know, but, about the homecoming yeah. now, you Now, homecoming from the Second World War, we didn't get parades, and we didn't want them. We just wanted to get home and get jobs and get our families going again. And this business of giving returning soldiers parades is taken from movies, as, I guess, uh, maybe the history of the Fighting 69th in the First World mm. War, mm. as that regiment got a ticker tape parade. But uh, everybody comes home from war sick. It's as though it were a disease that you're finally over. It's like getting out of a hospital. We've got to come back to the whole subject of how this came to be, this
0: change. Has it always been so? When did the change take mm-hmm. place? World of the Cold War, perhaps World War II aftermath. So, but more of that also in, the, in this uh, forthcoming book of Kurt Vonnegut, Fates Worse Than Death. And uh, the, the publishers are your regular ones, aren't they? Putnam, yes. yeah, forthcoming. More of Kurt Vonnegut, un momento. And so resuming with Kurt Vonnegut and the whole subject, what's happened to us? Admiral Jean Larocque retired. I mentioned the fact that he's an admiral just to offer his credentials, so he's not quote unquote snake. He, uh, he analyzes, uh, dissects, and is tremendous in, 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 in analyzing the American military Pentagon budgets and expenditures and the purpose. He says that we have engaged in more world wars, more wars, United States, elsewhere, and that's the important thing, elsewhere, than any country in the history of uh, human uh, w- warfare. And as a result, he says, we've become, in your do it, because we hardly feel it except for the families who've suffered. Then he goes on to say At the end of World War II, the department, the cabinet names changed Department of War. When we learned as a kid, St. Wapniakel, State, Treasury, War, Attorney General, Postmaster oh. General, Navy, Interior. Was, never heard uh, it. St. Wapniacle. Yeah. Named all the cabinet. Yeah. And, na- and finally ends Neakel, Commerce Labor. Department of War was changed to Department of Defense. Yeah. Now you can always challenge war, you can attack the concept of war, but you cannot attack defense. So it became Department of Defense. As you point out in your essays, Armistice Day, which I remember November 11th as a kid, became Veteran's Day. Yeah. Armistice, meaning the end,
1: yeah. became something else everybody should want to be a veteran as uh-huh. you know don't don't but, be left out know. and so war became defense yeah. to make the challenge sound treason. who do you suppose did that well, uh, because well, it's the act of one man finally somebody put it in the suggestion box uh, so much goes on that is uh, we'll never know how it happened as, uh, eisenhower of course put under god on the dollar, on our currency as one nation under God or, uh, and into the ple- Pledge of Allegiance as we know who did that. Well this was pre-Eisenhower.
0: Yeah. This is the end of, the, so it's Truman time,
1: yeah.
0: uh, when that happened, so perhaps the Cold War. Now we have something crazy. The Cold War, that a stopping communism, right, became mm-hmm. the sine qua non for any military buildup, whether it be Vietnam, whether it be Cuba, whether it be anywhere. But now that it's stone-cold dead in the market, that is the Soviet Union, we've got to find new kinds of enemies, don't we?
1: Well, as, as they are saying, they're going to need these new, new planes uh, uh, for the year 2000, and, and I, I have no idea who the enemy is. But again, you can't get a handle on this.
0: Well, now you talk in
1: your in your essay, one of your essays,
0: in mm-hmm. Faith's Worse Than Death, about addiction. There's Alcoholics Anonymous to help people fight mm. booze, addiction. Mm. He's a group called Nicotinic Nobody.
1: Oh, well, that's my club. I should join. Yeah, you should join. Yeah. But what
0: about your suggestion of WPA, and that doesn't mean Work Project Administration, yeah. but War Preparers Anonymous. Perhaps you could talk yeah. about that.
1: Well, I... Uh, Explaining the mystery of, of our putting more and more money into weapons all the time, which we don't need, and all that. And I finally decided that it was an addictive problem that these people uh, uh, got drunk, in effect, got a, a, a short lived high uh, from, uh, you know, ordering a whole lot of tanks or ordering uh, rockets on choo choo trains and, and uh, that sort of thing, and that they were ill and that they ought to kick the habit so that uh, we can spend the money on something else. You know, I, I I hardly ever meet anybody in the weapons industry, do you? No. As I, I never see them anywhere, and it's a huge industry. Uh, uh, where they hang out, I don't well, know. Well, why,
0: why should they see you and me when, the <laughs> <laughs> when if they're lobbying? They gotta uh, fate somebody, whether a cabinet hmm. member or a congressman, dinner. What do you and I get doing them? Yeah, well, you'd <laughs>
1: think you'd just run into them socially somewhere, <laughs> but they, they. Well, you're they, just attending, you just associate yeah. with the wrong people. Well, I, I guess that's the story of my life,
0: yeah. yeah. But you and John went, but this matter of, and, and this, should addicts, uh, the question Kurt Vonnegut asked, I'm sure the question would throw Buckley again, would take him literally and everything. Should addicts of any sort hold high office in this or any other country? We know what happened to a couple of people when they we were caught with marijuana. Uh, we know bad things happened to the yeah. guy who was Ginsburg, when nominated for the Supreme Court. Uh, where it happened to Gary Hart for another sort of addiction. But here is: should addicts? You're talking about war addiction. Yeah. Should addicts of any sort hold high offices? Quoting vonnegut, in this or any other country, absolutely not. For the first priority will always be to satisfy their addiction no matter how terrible the consequences may be, even to themselves. Should we, uh, suppose we had an alcoholic president who still had not hit bottom, but whose chief companions were drunks like himself. Suppose it were a fact made absolutely clear to him that if he took just one more drink, the whole planet would blow up. And so we naturally say, get out, impeach him. Uh But you're saying if a guy is addicted to war preparation,
1: he may be excited and it, it may be, uh, you know, it may be profoundly Freudian and and uh, this man may be these people addicted this way. I said that as sort of a joke, but these people who are addicted to buying more and more weapons we don't need may, may indeed be trying to uh, increase the size of their sexual organs or whatever. Uh, I don't know, but it, the consequences are certainly very unpleasant. Uh, is and we're broke now as we've bought all this crap and and um, so sorry i'm so sorry about so much well, but i then I think I take it too seriously <laughs> <laughs>
0: we come about it being serious again. yeah
1: yeah who gives a damn as but do you,
0: really that, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. do you feel that i mean do you feel that people who really don't give a damn or they've been they've been conditioned i i suppose i'm using the word conditioning a lot have been conditioned. By one form or another of hysteria or hype, whether it be Cold War or what follows it, or a love of uh, high technology, mm-hmm. doesn't it all play a role in molding that person? way that person, thinks yeah, it? and
1: it's very touching too because people want to believe that their country is the greatest country in the world. Uh, just as the, uh, you know, they want to believe that their dad and their mom are the greatest parents in the world, if ever, if possible, and. Uh, uh, so, yes, they're going to love and trust George Bush as much as they can because he's all they've got.
0: I, I know what I want to uh, bring up. It's in, it's, in the, it's in the works these days. The phrase politically correct is used as a pejorative, a put-down mm-hmm. phrase for those people who want more courses in cultures other than Western mm-hmm. and it's, considered, it's looked upon as a threat to the great books of the world, of the Western world politically correct is used as a put-down for those who say, wait a minute, uh, there's a difference between free speech and verbal assault. Mm. This all goes on, of course. And it occurred to me, the same people who use PC, politically correct, as a put-down, including George Bush, by the way, in a recent speech, are the very ones who always opposed any change in status quo. And this was so in the 60s, when they used radical chic, the phrase Tom Wolfe, Yeah you uh, in reference to Leonard Bernstein's party for the Black Pan. No one ever used the phrase conservative chic, which is far more pervasive, or indifference chic,
1: or as you would say, unserious chic. Yeah.
0: That's never been used. Isn't that funny?
1: Well, it, again, uh, what Liebling said is freedom of the press is, is for the yeah. people who own, own presses, and uh, so the ideas that interest us are, are not in free circulation. You know, we've got to talk about the last part of the show, other, other of your
0: essays. and One is about a mutual friend of ours, the late Nelson Aldridge, yes. of course, who was a great clown in the best sense of the word yes. in speaking truth to power in his way. Well, you, and also perhaps a word about your father, the architect, mm-hmm. because of a personal experience I had in a movie after this break. So resuming for the last, it's the last lap, the last round, the last inning with Kurt Vonnegut, who's in town, by the way, under the auspice of the Printer's Row Book Fair. And it's, uh, this is Friday night, tomorrow and Sunday in the whole area, the Printer's Row. It's on Dearborn Street and Polk and around there. Whole, all sorts of writers will be there, including Vonnegut, of course. and and Alex Kotler, which wrote a marvelous book called and uh, the No children here, and Lisa Mueller, the poet, will be there, Madeline Lengel. But Kurt will be there uh, making a speech, I believe, on Saturday night. Saturday morning, I Saturday think. Saturday morning, yeah. and they're also reading from Hocus Pocus, and it's an annual event that's a very exciting one. There. Now, in your forthcoming book, Fates Worse Than Death, you speak of Aldrin.
1: Yes. Well, I got to know him. I, I, I'd known him for a long time, surely not as well as you had, uh, but then we wound up at the University of Iowa at the same time, and, and so we spent a year there together, and I got to know him quite well, and then I got to know him again at the very end of his life out in uh, Sag Harbor, New York, where Stein, John Steinbeck is buried, incidentally, and Nelson Algren also. also, uh, but he was... Well, he was like James Joyce. I don't think he an exile from his own land. And uh, I don't think he needed to be that. Did he study? No, the people so. of Chicago did not uh, read. No, I, what I he think, if, uh, if I could just correct he was
0: not uh, ostracized. Con- in his early days, he had a tough time with some yeah. of the books. Never come on, and the community was objecting to the book. But he was not that was Nelson's own own mm-hmm. crazy hangups, we, of which he had a number. But you knew him. But you you point out that he he had he was eccentric in a quite marvelous way. What's that phrase he used when you introduced him to a Chilean friend of yours?
1: Oh yes. Well, this is a, I, I. Writers in real life are so seldom funny, uh, but we all uh, at the start of a semester there at the University of Iowa, we in the writers' workshop were part of the English department, so we had to go to the English department meeting, and we were. Coming down afterwards, and we were all new there. It was myself and it was Jose Denoso, the Chilean novelist, and Nelson. And I knew Donoso some and I knew Algren some. And so I introduced uh, De Noso to Algren and I, I said he he is from Chile. And Nelson thought for a while and finally turned to Denoso and said, I think it would be nice to come from a country that long and narrow. <laughs> <laughs>
0: By the way, you you, uh, <laughs> uh, you played a role in getting the um, the medal, very prestigious medal.
1: Well, yes, there's people like Faulkner and Hemingway, got this thing, and and only our greatest writers, and it's it's only given every four or five years. I forget uh, American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters, honors our greatest writers, and uh, so I proposed Nelson for this medal, which he surely deserved, and. Uh, so he got it, and uh, I mean, the committee said, yeah, he's got the medal, and, and so I wrote the citation and everything and called up Nelson and, and said, hey, come on and get this medal. Is it at the spring meeting there. It's a very nice ceremony, very important ceremony, and he said, no, no, because he had to speak to a garden club <laughs> <laughs> that afternoon, and uh, he did not come, uh, he, d- I, s- I said, look, you got you gotta have a response. I'll read your response too. What is it? And and so it was an attack on Time Magazine, which made, <laughs> 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 which made no sense at all. And uh, I out there in Sag Harbor, I had dinner with him shortly before he died, and I said, Nelson, what the hell happened to the medal? Did you hock it or what? Because it's somewhat valuable. And he said, I think it rolled under the couch. Uh, he w- but he he felt he had not gotten the recognition yeah. he deserved, and it was too damn late. Yeah, th- there
0: it? was the perversity of him. Yeah, but, it, but you you were speaking about something he wrote, a short story that I love, Stickman's Laughter.
1: Yeah, is that he, the guy who blows his paycheck? Or yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: Banty. Yeah, a Stickman's Laughter. Yeah, and he blows his paycheck, comes home to his wife, who who he understands it, but it's been moving. See, in the middle of all the craziness, this tremendous, I hate to use that overused word, compassion, but you're saying, wouldn't it be something if the kid, if, if this country showed a little compassion yeah. for some of the people we played a role in knocking off or
1: observed. Well, one thing Nelson good. said, did, which George Bernard Shaw did not have nerve enough to do and Charles Dickens did not have enough to do is to say that poor people can be really mean and dumb. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, I appreciated that. It, a lot of people in his story have been brutalized by poverty and uh, should probably be shot at the scum of the earth. And he had nerve enough to say well, that. Nobody was, else had. He speak something I guess we'd call
0: the human comedy. Yeah. Way, which is what you do in your surreal, one of the word surreal fashion, mm-hmm when you do in Hocus Pocus for one thing very definitely. Hocus Pocus is a book that hasn't received enough attention. I say this not because you because it hasn't received enough of it. It is a funny book and a very insightful book and you say there's no, people say how come you got no person who's a central figure? You say there is one, mm-hmm.
1: imperialism. <laughs> yeah, well I, th- I think we are still recovering from European imperialism. It's Extraordinary, and of course, it was armed robbery on a huge scale all over the world, and so the whole planet is sickened by it.
0: So before we say goodbye,
1: I think we have to I have to ask you about your father, mm-hmm. the architect
0: in Indianapolis, for a certain personal reason. Because in the making, John Sales and directing and writing the screenplay for Eight Men Out, that fine baseball book by Elliot Asin about the White Sox, mm-hmm. Black Sox scandal, he had me in it, and we had a scene there. That's supposed to be a Cincinnati hotel in 1919 hmm. before the series and the gamblers at work. But the locale, we did it in Indianapolis, the locale was this wonderful place. Yeah, that was it. Was it was called, and I only to discover that your grandfather was the architect
1: of that yes, place. Yes, he was, and uh, it was the German house, and during World War I, uh, the windows were smashed and yellow. Paint was thrown over the front of this, so they changed the name to the Athenaeum. Yeah, it is a, a national landmark of some kind and uh here's my grandfather's masterpiece and and uh i'm, I'm quite pleased that you saw it i, well, I, I was in it yeah well i, I made uh, john updike uh uh was lecturing out in indianapolis and asked me what kind of a town it is and i said well you got to go see my grandfather's yeah. masterpiece and he did and he but wrote me a nice your letter father
0: you talking about your father the architect yeah
1: well my father and grandfather were partners and uh uh, yeah, my grandfather was the first licensed architect in Indiana, and uh, one of the things I'm sad about is I didn't become an architect in Indianapolis, and, and it would have been a dynasty, you know, mm-hmm. and I think I could have done it. But were you interested f- in architecture? Yeah, mm-hmm. and, uh, but my father was so discouraged about architecture and about the arts in general. He was a very cultivated man, and, and uh, his interest became rather thuggish after a while. <laughs> we figured that the arts were we effeminate and and no way to make money and everything so he told me i could go to college only if i studied chemistry which i did
0: so how did chemistry come to literature
1: well it certainly didn't get in the way because i've forgotten everything i ever knew about <laughs> chemistry <laughs> i know what it I, i'll tell you what was good two really great things happened to me is i was always at the bottom of my classes because i never yeah. should have been studying calculus and physics and chemistry because I had no interest in them. And then the Army made me a private for three years. And boy, uh, that did me a lot of good. I I wouldn't change that for anything. How
0: did it do you good?
1: It made me like the people at the very bottom and to feel brotherhood with them And what, I had three years of college and I was an editor of the Cornell Sun and all that and a reasonably good IQ. I should have gone to OCS the minute I got in the Army. But there were too many, too many officers by the time they uh, got me. But I would have learned how to intimidate and scorn (laughs) people of no rank. And so
0: you wound up in a cellar in a bunker somewhere in Dresden and out of it came Slaughterhouse Five, so life works
1: in well, very strange ways. I have it. said often, probably on your show before, that only one person benefited from the firebombing of Dresden. That's you. And that's me, and I got $5 for each person killed there. Oh, <laughs> Nobody's boy. ever argued with that.
0: I'm thinking, by we need uh, the irony of Kurt Vonnegut very much. Maybe that might be a sort of a splash of cold water on the face, I don't know. But what does it take? What do you think it will take for it to get out of this, whatever the stage is, we're in the phase here, whatever it is. Well,
1: I th- I think, uh, I've praised Alcoholics Anonymous in this yeah. book, it's a, it's a great American invention, as I'm not an alcoholic, uh, but I admire that scheme. And uh, one thing is America, America must hit bottom. You think so? Any, any addict must hit bottom. Uh, before any remedy will be taken. And I think of the example of the Chicago Fire and the way Americans recovered from that. And after we've hit bottom, I would like to see that sort of energy brought to uh, building a decent educational system, a decent public health system.
0: So one question, if we hit bottom, let's say a depression. Yeah. And which we, the odds are pretty good. Isn't pretty it going good, on, there?
1: Studs, as you saw the other one? I think it's going on right now.
0: Well, it? It's a depression. Yeah. We use the word recession, and We love, as you know, we love euphemisms. Mm-hmm. And we say recession, which is a most softer word than the millions of steel workers. You've passed southeast Chicago, Gary, Indiana, Pittsburgh, the uh, suburban steel, mine, uh, steel mill towns family farmer, you go down Iowa, you pass through Iowa, Minnesota, ghost towns, reminiscent of Grapes of Wrath days, there's a depression now. And yet, there was a headline the other day, it said, Unemployment Increasing Optimism Tops. Figure yeah. that one out.
1: Well, the, the, the reason for optimism that I heard on the radio this morning... Is it unemployment isn't climbing as fast this month? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, no, but lead to the question if, if we do hit
0: bottom, won't there be a seeking of scapegoats? I come to that too that's the other question see
1: well i I would like to balkanize the United States and uh, the little countries are the best ones is Holland and Denmark and all that and I, and uh, I I would like to to belong to a manageable little society.
0: Small is beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) Schumacher. But Uh, I tell people. Kurt Vonnegut going, yeah, Schumacher, (laughs) one better. (laughs) Balkanize the United States.
1: (laughs) Well, go find yourself a family. That's what I tell unhappy people.
0: So the forthcoming book is is Fates Worse Than Death. But what is the fate worse than death that you have? Fates Worse Than Death. Yeah, well,
1: it, it was a sermon I gave, uh, uh, at Cathedral of Saint John the Divine, they had a bunch of picnics there, uh, preaching on on sequential Sundays, and I pointed out the consequences if of what would happen to us if we did not arm and did not protect ourselves, and if we were conquered. And uh, so I list all the things that might be worse than death, and I just I the enemy'd come over here and enslave us. But then I realized that Americans had in fact, survived slavery, and the only thing that I could come up with was that uh, uh, maybe the enemy would come over here and crucify us because that's very painful, except I didn't think any country had enough carpenters to, cru- <laughs> to crucify us. I was, I was trying to figure out why we had hydrogen bombs, you know, is, is what is the worst thing that could happen to us, and they've already happened to us. Uh uh, imagine the enemy came over here and drove us off our land and into the swamps and into the deserts. Well, Americans have survived that and still wanted life to go on. Americans like Indians. Yeah, yeah well, they're yeah. Americans, aren't they? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah. And uh, you know about slaves as a figure? I, uh, I heard uh, Al Murray told me this, you know, jazz historian? Yeah. He said the suver- suicide rate among slave owners per capita was much higher than among slaves. Mm. And he said that he thought this was because of the music, because of the blues in particular, that the black people knew remedies for depression, and the white people are helpless mm. victims of depression. There's nothing they can do about it, but that the blues, in fact, would yeah. comfort you.
0: By the way, that, 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 oh, this is in the, might just say this, mm. uh, Fate's Worse Than Death, because that's his speech. Kurt Vonnegut's people in the in the uh, Cathedral of St. John the Divine mm-hmm. and it's uh, putting of the publishers but mostly it's great having you around wow. stick around do some more say some more and maybe some way or other you can just give us that needle that will awaken us ah. printer's row book fair is featuring Kurt Vonnegut among many other writers Chicagoan uh, outsiders too Saturday tomorrow and Sunday all day, there'll be all sorts of panels to Kurt Vonnegut. The Printer's Row Book Fair that uh, features Kurt Vonnegut, among many other writers, uh, Liesl Mueller, the poet, Madeline Lengel, and uh, Alec Kotlowitz, and scores of others, is at uh, Dearborn Street from Congress to Polk. It's from 10 o'clock in the morning until dark, Saturday and Sunday.